0: Proverbs chapter 4, we're going to look at a single verse, verse 23, which is a simple but profoundly far-reaching proverb. This, this text exemplifies the common sense wisdom the Proverbs are so well known for, and it's loaded with practical ramifications. This is very practical stuff. Here's the proverb, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, just a short summary of what the proverb means. Here's the point it's making. Your heart is like a reservoir. And what comes out of your heart is what determines the quality and the character of your spiritual life. If your heart is defiled, it will have consequences in your behavior and your speech and your attitudes and every area of life. The heart is the wellspring of life itself, and if you pollute the fountain, you defile all of life. And anyone in the ancient world would have understood this because they kept their drinking water in reservoirs or, or containers that uh, uh, sort of kept it, and if anything got in there and defiled it, it would spoil the taste of everything you cooked with the water. I, I once uh, spent a summer in India ministering there, and uh, we noticed that the, the rice wasn't tasting good all of a sudden. And uh, so the the place where I was staying, it was a kind of camp, called a technician out, and he came and and looked into the well. And and I was fascinated when he opened the well. It had a top on it, so you normally couldn't see in it. And you look down in there, and it's this massive well that was overgrown with um, weeds and, and, like, Lily pads, and there were little frogs and stuff hopping around in there. This guy went down into the well and fished around and pulled out the corpse of a dead cat, and uh, that's what was given the the water of the flavor, and it flavored everything you cooked. I'm sorry to make you sick, but. (laughs) But that's sort of what this is saying. Guard your heart, because it's like the reservoir. And if it gets polluted, then everything in life is polluted. Now, I hope you understand that when Scripture speaks of the heart, it's talking about your thought life, basically. It's the very core of your soul, where your thoughts and your imaginations operate. Your thought life, not your external behavior or your public persona, but it's your thought life that shows your true character, Proverbs 23, 7, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What, what you think about, how you think, the ideas you entertain, and the privacy of your own imagination, that is the true barometer of your, of your character. In Mark 7, verses 20 through 23, Jesus makes this same point with the Pharisees. He says, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things, Jesus says, come from within and defile a man. You cannot entertain wicked thoughts without being utterly defiled by them. That's the principle the verse teaches. A corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Matthew seven eighteen. A contaminated well is unhealthy. And so it's, guard, it's vital to guard your heart and to keep it from every kind of defilement. That's the, that's the command here. And if we had time for two sessions in this short verse, I would spend the first session giving you three simple principles for keeping your heart. Keep it fresh and pure keep it full and large, keep it flowing and active. And I would stress that the only practical way to do those things is by being filled with the Spirit, because He is the only source of true of the true water of life. And He's the only fountain that can supply pure water, for the wellspring of life. So submit your heart and your mind to the Holy Spirit and He will purify your mind. He will fill your thoughts with good things and He'll guarantee that you'll neither be barren nor unfruitful through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want to focus on in this hour, since we've got only Only 45 minutes together are some of the practical and doctrinal implications of the command that we're given in this verse. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or as a a different version translates it, guard your heart, because it's the wellspring of life. And there are three clear spiritual doctrinal ramifications of this verse that I really want to highlight for you this morning number one is the duty of guarding your heart second is the difficulty of guarding the heart third is the desirability of guarding the heart we'll look at those one at a time and again is this outline in your notes no good you're good okay so you don't even need to worry about writing down the main outline Now, let's look first at the duty of guarding the heart. Notice, this is an imperative, it's a command. There is a duty clearly set forth in this verse, and it's essential that we embrace this duty and submit to the command. And in fact, I would say this is the chief practical duty of the Christian life as it pertains to us. We are taught by the first question in the catechism that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever that is what God made us for to enjoy him and to glorify him and that's a fitting statement of our duty with respect to God but our first and primary duty with respect to ourselves is the duty stated in this verse keep your heart with all vigilance And as we're going to see, that's ultimately the only way we can glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, this is not an easy obligation, and we're going to talk about that when I get to the second point. But the point here is that it's an important duty. It's not easy to keep our thoughts pure and holy, but our sinful thoughts are the first and most important sins that we are called to crucify, to mortify, to put to death. The thought, the sins of thought. Remember, Jesus taught that those sinful thoughts are the source and the fountain of all the evil that defiles us. All of it. Everything that defiles you comes from your thought life. And when the Apostle Paul commands us to mortify sin in our members, his focus is not on external deeds either but on the internal thoughts of the heart, Colossians three five, which is the verse where he tells us to mortify sins in our members. He goes on then to give a list of the kinds of sins he has in mind. And these are, listen to them, primarily sins that fester in an unholy heart, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Those are all sins of a lust-filled mind. The words you find in the King James Version are inordinate affection evil concupiscence, and covetousness. And every one of those words has to do with how we think, not what we do. Two more sins in that list, fornication and uncleanness, are likewise sins that are rooted in lust. And that means they're hatched in the mind first. He's not focusing here on the external action. He wants us to go to the source And purify that. So the process of mortifying all those sins involves getting control of the mind, the imagination, and the passions, the heart. He's calling for internal purification, not merely the reformation of our external behavior. He's not saying, you know, what your mother meant when you were a child and she said, behave. She meant act nice. Paul means think nice. That's how sanctification works. The focus is on purifying the heart and renewing the mind. And the outworking of our sanctification naturally results then in a change of behavior. But a change of behavior without the renewal of the heart is not really sanctification at all. You all know that because you've taken biblical counseling classes, or those of you who have at least know that. This is not about behavior modification. In fact, behavior modification is simply a lesson in hypocrisy. And I'll have more to say th- about that in a little while. But first, let me give you some practical steps for guarding your heart. How do we do this? What precisely does this verse require of us? Keep your heart with all vigilance. What does that mean? Scripture gives us some clear guidelines for keeping our heart. And I want to outline just the basics for you. These you ought to write down if they're not in your, in your notes. Maybe they are. I don't remember what notes I submitted. But here's step one. Give your heart to Christ. You cannot begin to put this principle into practice unless your heart is surrendered to the lordship of Christ and you're devoted to him in love. And and that means for those who are not believers, their hearts really aren't worth keeping. An unbelieving heart is a heart of stone. It's cold and it's dead and it's spiritually lifeless. It's corrupt and sinful in and of itself. So Utterly impotent to produce righteousness that Scripture literally compares it to a stone. You you need a wholesale heart renewal if you're not a believer. That's what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Ezekiel 36 describes the process of the new birth as the implantation of a whole new heart. That's what theologians refer to as regeneration. It's a supernatural work of God renewing the heart, a wholesale renewal of the heart. And that means the will and the passions are overhauled as well, which is not something we can do for ourselves because it involves a spiritual resurrection. It's life from the dead. Without that resurrection, regeneration, your heart is utterly incapable of any righteous thing whatsoever, which is what Romans chapter 8 is saying at the very beginning, Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, when it says, the mind that is set on the flesh, and he's talking there about an unregenerate mind, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, so that those who are in the flesh cannot, Cannot please God. And what he's saying there is that without regeneration, it's impossible to do anything that's pure or good or or holy. Without regeneration, you have a heart that is bereft of any righteousness, incapable of obedience to God, uh, unable to do anything to please Him. That is the doctrine of total depravity. And I didn't make it up. That's what the Bible teaches. If you don't have a regenerate heart, your heart isn't worth keeping. And it's impossible for an unregenerate heart to produce any true righteousness. But Christ invites us to give him our hearts. In fact, here in Proverbs, Christ is often personified as wisdom. And wisdom speaks in Proverbs 23, 26, "...my son, give me your heart." That's the voice of Christ, who is, again, personified throughout the book of Proverbs as wisdom. You can't truly give your heart to wisdom without giving your heart to Christ. According to 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is made unto us wisdom. So if you want to keep your heart, step one is this, give it to Christ. According to Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17, the way to be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man is to have Christ dwell in your hearts by faith. Give him your heart. Embrace him as the chief object of your love. Jesus himself said, you know, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. If he's not first in your heart, then you don't have any hope of keeping your heart pure. So that's step one. Step two, crucify your mind. Mortify your evil thoughts. I already quoted Colossians 3.5 where Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. And this is a recurring theme in Paul's writings. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put your evil thoughts to death deal with them ruthlessly don't allow any breathing room for those wicked thoughts choke the life out of them romans 13:14 put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires this is one of the marks of a true christian galatians 5:24 says it like this those who belong to christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires Now, if you struggle with this concept of mortifying your evil thoughts, uh, uh, there's a whole message that I did on this one, so you can download from the Internet, uh, called How to Deal with an Evil Habit. But the point I'm, I'm making there is that sinful thoughts are a, 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 an especially perverse sin to commit because it's a fierce, deadly enemy that you carry inside your own head and it must be met with force, killed is the way Paul describes it, mortified, choked out of existence, rooted up, exterminated, and utterly purged from our lives. If you don't deal with the sins that occur in your mind that way, you will never overcome sin at all. Evil imaginations, covetous desires, angry thoughts, lustful passions, and every wicked thought, any one of those things, will destroy you if you don't destroy it. And you'll never get control of your thought life if you're not proactive and deliberate and ruthless in mortifying and putting to death the sin that's in your heart. We'll talk about how to do that, Lord willing, before we close here. Step three, put restraints on your heart that will keep you from entertaining iniquity in the private arena of your own mind. Get rid of the evil influences, in other words. Don't watch movies or read novels that fill your mind with wickedness. Have some self-control in what you expose yourself to. First Timothy 4, seven. train yourself for godliness. In fact, look at the context of our verse, Proverbs 4.20, My son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, let them not escape from your sight, keep in that and just in the immediate context here there's lots of sound advice about how to guard your heart look at it here with me first of all if you want to guard your heart you have to guard your ears verse 20 be attentive to my word my words incline your ear to my sayings be careful what you fill your ears with which suggests this verse does that the the focus of our hearing ought to be the wisdom of God's word be attentive, he says. Incline your ear to these sayings. I'm amazed at what some Christians do incline their ears to and fill their heads with. I, I, I could probably tell a lot about the state of anyone's sanctification just by checking the presets on their car radio or what podcasts you download or whatever. And what do you listen to when you're alone, and you get to choose for yourself? You know, when you're driving in your car, what do you tune into? Is it the Shock Jocks, or the off-color humor, the angry ranting of certain drive-time radio personalities? Do you have this? We in Los Angeles, there are a couple of guys in the afternoon on the radio who are angry all the time, and the rants are—I mean, really, just. Do you, do you listen to that? Do you gravitate to music that is profane and full of iniquity? And I always wonder, why would a Christian willingly fill his ears with profanity and lewdness? And how can a godly person actually derive enjoyment from that? And yet, in all, in all truth, I find myself, if I don't, if I don't watch what I'm tuning the TV to, or what I'm listening to on the radio, I find myself being entertained by wickedness. This passage seems to say, don't do that. Your, your listening should be dominated by that which edifies. Our ears ought to be inclined to wisdom and to the Word of God. If that's not the focus and the predominance of what you listen to when you're alone, with time to think and to meditate." then you're probably not doing a very good job of keeping your heart. Next he says, guard your eyes, verse 21, don't let the truth depart from your eyes. And that's echoed in verse 25, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. In other words, keep your eyes where they ought to be or you won't be able to keep your heart where it ought to be. Jesus said, Matthew six twenty-two and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Which is a good reason not to watch some of the stuff we watch, isn't it? Our culture constantly bombards us with images and entertainment that is de- deliberately designed to appeal directly to the lust of the eyes. And if you don't know when to turn away and refuse to watch, you're not doing a good job of guarding your heart. And and I'm not speaking only about that which is overtly evil. That's a given. I shouldn't even have to make that point. But think about this. Much of what we watch is simply a waste of time. That is detrimental to us spiritually because it fills our hearts with vain thoughts. Empty things. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.37, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. You know, when you're on Facebook and that thing in the margin tells you you won't believe what happens next, and you click on it and you find yourself clicking through 45 different pages or a very slow-loading trivia that says nothing and adds nothing to your life. That's never happened to me. I don't know how I know... But seriously, if you sit watching for TV for hours, even if you're watching the Fox News channel or a Home and Garden network or whatever, or your Facebook page, if you do that for hours and hours and hours, you're probably not doing a very good job of guarding your heart. Here's another one. Guard your conscience, verses 21 and 22. Keep these sayings within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Now, when the writer of this proverb Encourages us to guard our hearts, he's in effect telling us to keep a healthy and active conscience. That's really the broader point. You could almost paraphrase the point of this text that way. Cultivate a mind and a conscience that are informed by the word of God. I don't need to say much about this, it's really self evident. Don't let the voice of God's wisdom be silenced in your heart by the hardening of your conscience. And there's more, verse 24, guard your tongue, put away from you crooked speech, put devious talk far from you. Proverbs seventeen twenty says, he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. One of the very practical ways you can mortify sin in your heart is by consciously and carefully restraining the expression of evil on your, in your speech which is one of the reasons it it so disturbed me five years or so ago when it suddenly became popular, even for preachers, to contextualize the biblical message by lacing everything they said with mild profanities. That's not how Scripture teaches us to talk. James 3, verse 2 says, If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. He's saying there, if you can control your tongue, you'll be able to control your mind as well. And he's acknowledging it's like the hardest thing ever to do. And nobody does it perfectly. Here's another one. Guard your feet, verses 26 and 27. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. In other words, stay away from the places where temptation assaults you. That's pretty much straightforward, simple wisdom. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you sincerely mean that prayer then don't go places where you know you're going to be tempted. It's pointless to pray that prayer if you're going to willingly expose yourself to temptation. Recently, I, I was saying some of these things in a message, and someone came to me afterwards and said, well, you know, that's not really very balanced. Why didn't you warn about the dangers of legalism? You ought to do another message and explain why you shouldn't be legalistic about these things? Well, I, I have preached on legalism, and if you want to hear that, you can download it. But let me just say, I don't think that legalism is the biggest temptation most people in the evangelical community these days face. If most modern evangelicals have an imbalance, it's in the opposite direction, the direction towards worldliness, not legalism. But there isn't anything legalistic about uh, any of this. I haven't given you any lists or rule of rules or, or specific things you can and cannot do. I'm giving you a list of principles here, and I'm telling you that you ought to avoid temptation. And again, that's just such a basic principle of spiritual and biblical wisdom, and not at all a complex idea that I always wonder about anybody who would listen to a principle like that and say, but that's legalistic. Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. And you're in Proverbs 4. Look at verses 14 and 15. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. And if that sounds legalistic to you, then you're probably having a hard time guarding your heart. Two more things, and then I'll move on to the next point. Keeping your heart also entails a watchful, cautious... Self control over your emotions. It's an important thing to say today, these days. People let their emotions, people confuse their minds with their emotions. Let their emotions drive what they believe and what they think. Don't let that happen. It should be vice versa that our mind controls our emotions. Emotions are good in their place. It's just like your arms are good, but they're not for walking. Your nose is good, but it's not for driving nails. In the same way, your emotions are good, but they're not for thinking. Scripture condemns the person who thinks with his emotions. James 3.15 refers to that kind of thinking as sensual wisdom. That's what it means, sensual wisdom, a sort of thinking that's driven by emotion, passion. James says, the wisdom, this wisdom, this sensual wisdom, descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. It produces bitter envying and strife in the heart. You know, emotions are like screaming kids. Until you calm them down, you can't be heard. If you want to get rid of your bad thoughts, you have to control your emotions. Now, finally, and above all, control your thoughts. This is the whole point, and this is the area where the virtue of self-control is really the most important. It's the one arena where your entire battle for self-control is going to be won or lost in your mind. If you willingly and deliberately allow yourself to indulge in evil thoughts and wicked fantasies, you are filling the wellspring of your life with poison, and there's nothing more self-destructive. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, let's move on. That's the first implication of our text. It's a command. So it's the duty of guarding your heart. Doctrine number one that we draw from this text is, it is your bounden duty to guard your heart. You need to do it carefully and diligently and conscientiously. And that's a good place to make the transition to doctrine number two, the difficulty of guarding the heart and our text implies that keeping the heart is not an easy task. So he says keep your heart with all vigilance. This is not something that you can do casually. It's not something that comes naturally to any of us. It, you can't do it passively. It, it it requires diligence and effort and perseverance, persistence, constancy, industry. It's a struggle. And, all, and that's all an understatement. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Genesis eight twenty one. God himself says, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And he says that both before the flood and after, when all you've got is Noah and his family, and Noah, a redeemed man, a righteous man in that sense, and yet God acknowledges that his heart is still wicked, According to Psalm 51, verse 5, we are brought forth in iniquity. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9, 3, The hearts of the children of men are, so full of, are full of evil and madness. Madness is in their hearts all the while they live. We are hopelessly, desperately, and completely wicked in and of ourselves. That's the state of every fallen man. And again, that's the doctrine of total depravity, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And while... Things change when you become a believer. The remnants of all that sin are still with us. So we're still commanded not to trust our hearts. They will deceive us. And bear in mind that Jesus said all of the sin we struggle with emanates from within our hearts. That's true of believers as well as unbelievers. Matthew 15, 19, and 20, Jesus said, "...for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, slander. These are what defile a person." He's saying, the heart is the source of the whole human problem in the first place. So we have to guard our heart not only from evil influences that assault us from the outside, but more importantly from the evil that breeds right there within. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: He who trusts his own heart is a fool. Here's a good lesson: You can never trust your own heart too much. And you can never, or rather, you can never trust your own heart too little, and you can never trust God too much. I said that backwards. Don't trust your heart, but do trust God. That's the idea. We, we face perpetual threats to the purity of our hearts. I've already mentioned some. Vain thoughts, mindless trivial matters that absorb our attention and our time. The pleasures of sin entice us, the lure of the world, the wiles of the devil, the sinful tendencies of our own flesh, all of these things gang up on us and appeal to the wickedness and the corruption that lies in our hearts, it's the wickedness inside us that causes the problem, because it's always ready to respond to any catalyst. And you cannot cleanse your own heart. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? And the implied answer is, nobody can say that. Job 14, verse 4, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. 1 John 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So this is a huge problem. Our hearts are desperately wicked, and we can't change that any more than a leopard can change its spots. We can pretend we're basically good. That's what a lot of people do. But that doesn't change reality. One of, the, one of my favorite Puritans this is a sort of obscure Scottish Puritan named Andrew Gray and he said this if there were a window opened into each of our hearts through which oh, every one of us here might behold one another's hearts we would become monsters and wonders to one another and to ourselves likewise that's true I think our hearts are breeding grounds for all kinds of evil and according to 1 John 1.10 if you think you're an exception to that rule you're self deceived you're calling God a liar and his word is not in you to quote Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-six, one more time, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And that's why it's just no simple task to keep our hearts pure. Remember that Adam had a heart that wasn't even already defiled with sin, and he managed to keep it pure for only a very short time. He was fallen before he and Eve had even conceived their first child. That shows the difficulty of keeping a pure heart. And it also gives us some perspective on what kind of diligence is required for the keeping of our hearts. This is something you have to do constantly. If you only keep your heart pure part-time, that's just hypocrisy it's an abomination to God. If the only time you think about these things or or strive to obey is when you're listening to a message on the subject or when you come to the Lord's table or when it's otherwise convenient, then all you're doing is practicing the religion of the Pharisees. That's merely honing the skill of hypocrisy. There are times when it's fairly easy to guard our hearts, when we're under affliction or under conviction or in church or in public It's much easier to keep our hearts pure and focused when when we're in a group rather than when we're alone in private enjoying our leisure. And frankly, that's why trials and difficulties are good for us. It's why God providentially sends us trials and afflictions. That's an act of mercy because when circumstances force us to be dependent on the Lord, our hearts stay fixed on him. But the real test of obedience in this whole matter is whether you are able to keep your heart pure in private, when you are alone, when things are going well, when you have an opportunity to rest from the cares of life, your leisure time, and especially when nobody's looking. That is when it is most vital to keep a careful watch over your heart. And sadly, that's when most of us fail miserably. So what's the solution? Well, devote yourself, especially in your leisure time, to the task of cultivating humility and repentance and holiness and the fear of God. In other words, give your private life to God. It's relatively easy to be a Christian in public. It's a fairly simple matter to search your heart and examine your life if you only do it once a week and limit your self-examination to those times when you come to the Lord's table. But if you do that... Scripture says God despises your worship. Listen to Isaiah sixty-six verses two and two through four. He says. This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh judgment for them, and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes, and chose that in which I did not delight. In other words, God's saying, if you choose your own way, if, if your private life is devoted just to personal pleasure where you seek delight, especially in in things that God deems abominable, then when you come to worship, your worship is an abomination to him it 's repulsive to God. your sacrifice and this is the exact imagery he uses your sacrifice is no more valid if you do that if you live the life of a hypocrite, whatever sacrifice you make to God is no more valid than if you offered pig 's blood to him, and you 're supposed uh, uh, service to God is an offense to him. You may think you're sacrificing a lamb, but it's no more acceptable to God than if you severed the neck of a dog and tried to offer the dog's corpse. Proverbs fifteen eight: the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. So what is acceptable to God? Well, I just read it, Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 51.17 says the same thing. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So, in other words, it's the offering of our hearts that is most acceptable to God. And by definition, you cannot do that on a part-time basis. If God is to have our hearts, he has to have the whole heart. And this is a difficult duty. But think about it. That is the substance of the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. So we've seen the duty of guarding our hearts. We've talked about the difficulty of guarding our hearts. Here's a third doctrine we glean from this text. It's the desirability of guarding the heart. Look at the text again. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's sheer folly not to guard the heart. It's spiritual suicide. It's unbelievably self-destructive. This is a sure way to ruin your life. Poison the wellspring with evil. Don't ever trivialize the sins you commit in your heart we all tend to do that don't we we think of the uh, the sins of thought we think those are the trivial sins because nobody else sees that it's it's no big deal but don't ever think you can entertain sin in your mind without grave danger to your soul the sins you cultivate in your imagination directly assault your soul because when you engage in evil thoughts you are pouring poison directly into the well and you will reap what you sow cultivating sinful desires sinful thoughts just simply removes every barrier from your will that would otherwise keep you from doing the deed and in fact the thought is the parent of the deed if you're going to imagine it then when the opportunity arises you will do it if you foster a desire for sin you will succumb when the temptation presents itself proverbs 25:28 Says a man without self-control is like a city broken into, without left without walls. In other words, uh, if you stoke your mind with evil thoughts, you are fanning the flames of temptation. And if you do that, you won't have any defense when temptation comes. So guard your heart; it's the wellspring of life. If you defile the fountain, you destroy yourself. Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, he will reap. That in and of itself is a good reason we ought to guard our hearts. It's the only way to safeguard our own well-being. But there's something even more serious at stake than your earthly reputation and happiness when you give your heart over to evil thoughts. By entertaining evil in the heart, we incur the wrath of God. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Job said something similar. Job knew knew something about keeping his heart pure, and he also experienced God's grace in the midst of his trials. But in Job 27, verses 8 and 9, he said, For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much... If God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? And the implied answer is no. By being hypocrites, we actually cut ourselves off from from the grace God gives us. It's the heart. And you know this, right? That it's the heart, not merely our behavior, that God sees and will judge First Chronicles twenty nine seventeen. David prays, "I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness." In Jeremiah seventeen ten, the Lord Himself says, "I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways." And Revelation 20, uh, two verse twenty three echoes that. Uh, It says, for I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So God sees every thought of our hearts. He knows our hearts perfectly. And I could quote a string of scriptures that prove that, but you've heard most of them. and, And I'll save time here and skip over that. Just to say that scripture is full of this truth. God sees our hearts. And if you would blush to have the thoughts of your hearts shown on the screen up here for everyone in this room to see you ought to tremble at the reality that God already knows those thoughts and knows them all together Jesus said blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God Hebrews twelve fourteen adds this without holiness no one shall see the Lord so this is a vitally important matter it underscores the desirability of guarding our hearts because an impure heart can ruin us for life and eternity so where do we go for a, a pure heart? Well, I've already spoken of the utter impossibility of cleansing your own heart. If it's impossible to do that, why does this verse command us to guard our hearts? If our hearts are deceitful, how do we do this? What is the answer to that? Well, first and most obviously, we have to repent of our impurity, the impurity of our hearts. David wrote in Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. So it starts with repentance. Second, though we can't cleanse our own hearts, God himself can. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, verse 19. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And again, if you're an unbeliever, if if you've never trusted Christ for salvation, what you need is a new heart. But Scripture says even for us, as believers, it's God who must cleanse our hearts and purify us. And Acts fifteen nine says God purifies our hearts by faith. Malachi three two says this about Christ. He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So he can do that work of cleansing and refinement that we cannot do for ourselves, but we so desperately need. God promises Forgiveness for our sins. And he imparts to us his own spirit. That's what enables us to know his mind. It's what equips us to think righteous thoughts. It's what empowers us to obey his commandments. And though we still don't do that perfectly because of the weakness of our flesh and the imperfections of our fallenness, Christ clothes us in the garment of his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before God, without fear of condemnation. That's the gospel message. And that is the greatest incentive I know for filling our hearts and minds with thoughts about Christ and his glory.